Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you on a chronological journey through Swedish history, one step at a time. And I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. And we're now reaching the end of the 1200s on our journey. Our last episode ended with the death of King Magnus III, or Magnus Lodelos, as he's known in Swedish, in 1290. And we're now about to enter into some quite tumultuous times in Swedish history, at least when it comes to the rule of the country. Yeah, I think you mean even more tumultuous <laughs> uh, than it's been already, because it's been pretty busy in terms of events so far. It's been pretty crazy in the ruling of Sweden, and it's going to get crazier. It definitely has been quite tumultuous already, what with brothers fighting over the throne and dragging neighbouring countries into it and all of that business. Yeah, you're quite right, but we're going to see more of the same, and also on an elevated level in the decades to come. But first, it's time for our Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, it is. And this time the phrase is And it's another one involving animals, uh, which is very popular, it seems, at least in the phrases that we're choosing. You're right. Uh, this phrase literally translates to English as when the cat is gone, the rats dance on the table. Uh, it means that when the person in charge of something or the person or the thing that supervises something and makes sure it works, uh, when they're gone, then the people don't care about doing the thing they're meant to do. So an example could be uh, say your kid has had a substitute teacher for a week and the kids don't respect them the way they respect their ordinary teacher, so they've done no work. Then you could say, well, the kids did no work this week because when the cat was gone, the rats danced on the table. Now, katten var borta, dansade råttorna på bordet. Yeah, well, that definitely makes sense. The analogy with the cat being the one in charge and the rats celebrating and making mischief when the cat is gone. And we do actually have the same phrase in English. When the cat's away, the mice will play. But it's definitely not used that frequently. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say it in real life before. Whereas I, I don't think I've recognized the Swedish phrase, but you probably have heard it around and about. Yeah, I feel like the Swedish phrase is, uh, is much more common than the English similar one. Cool. Well, let's leave these cats and rats and their friends, the dogs or whoever is involved in all this uh, animal farm business and get started with today's episode. Like also said, we've reached the year 1290 and after a lot of trouble at the start of his reign, King Magnus has left behind a country that is actually relatively peaceful and where state and royal power has been even further strengthened and also made more efficient. Sweden still employs the practice of an elected monarchy, meaning that the ruler is elected by the powerful elites, both ecclesiastical elites, so church people, and secular elites. However, for a long time by now, there's been a tradition that the royal power stays with certain powerful families or dynasties. Or, well, at least those families have tried to keep it that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. And most recently, Power has resided for quite a while with the Bialbu family, who had worked on the edges of Power for many generations, but finally grabbed the crown when Biryar managed to make his own son, Valdemar, king about 40 years ago in the timeline. Valdemar's brother, Magnus, then took over after some intense fighting with his brother and sort of bits of exile and sending his brother off to, to Denmark, or he actually ran away himself, chose to go to Denmark, and all this kind of drama that we covered in the last couple of episodes. And King Magnus died just before Christmas in 1290, after being on the throne for 15 years. And he left this world, leaving a couple of underage children behind. So, will power remain with the Biabu dynasty after this event? Well, yes. Although the person who is named as Magnus' heir to the throne is his son, Biyal, who is only around 10 years old at this time. That that hasn't stopped medieval Swedes in the past from uh, putting young children on the throne, so I presume it's not going to stop them this time. You're right. Uh, it's exactly what happens now. Ten-year-old Biyal becomes king. Congratulations, Biyal. I'm sure you'd rather be outside with your friends playing, but no, now you're king. Uh, this really is Biyal king, as opposed to Biyal y'all that we talked about previously who is this Biyal's granddad. Biyal is the first and to this day only Swedish king with that name, so he gets no regnal number. He's just King Biyal of Sweden, or sometimes King Biyal Magnusson, since he's the son of a Magnus that makes his surname Magnusson. Yes, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I'm not predicting any future Birgers as King of Sweden. Uh, whilst the name is very much still around today, it's not a really popular name in the royal circles, for example. It's not a Carl or a Philip, for example. Nah, I mean, never say never, but I'm inclined to agree with your prediction. Um, anyway, as this is so often with the case in this time period, we don't know much about Birger's early life. We don't know when he was born, just the fact that he was four years old when his father named him as heir. So he's had six years of practicing, I guess, of being the heir, not that he probably did too much in that area. His father was, like we've already mentioned, King Magnus III, Magnus Laudelos, and his mother was Queen Helvig, born Princess of Holstein. Uh, Queen Helvig survived her husband and will remain in the picture for quite a long time still. Uh, so she had time to be there to raise her children and see them grow up. After her husband's death, she lived primarily at a large estate called Deove in the county of Westmaland. So, Birger wasn't Magnus and Helvig's only child. He had five other siblings who will eventually live to be adults, and one brother who died as a child. We talked about Magnus's kids and what they got up to in our second episode about them, so we're not going to repeat too much of that here. But it's worth just reminding ourselves that Birger has two younger brothers, Erik and Valdemar. What a surprise about <laughs> the names. They're only eight and five years old at this point, so they're not doing too much other than running around, being kids, and probably hanging around with their older brother, the king. But remember their names because they're definitely going to return later on. But for now, this is where we're at. King Magnus is dead, and at the tender age of ten, Birger is now king. 
But even though medieval Swedes seemed fond of putting young children on the throne, even they realized that a 10-year-old can't actually do much proper ruling. So Bioyo is essentially left to just keep being a kid, live with his family, grow up and learn the skills uh, that a child of his social standing is expected to learn. The day-to-day ruling of Sweden is instead taken over by the council, a sort of regency government for the time that the new king is still a child, just like we've seen before. Around the time King Magnus died, actually so did several of his closest friends and colleagues, including members of this council. They didn't last very long. And one of these people who didn't last very long was King Magnus's brother Bengt, so the current king's uncle. He was the man with that very cool double job of being both Bishop of Linköping and Duke of Finland. But he dies just six months after Birja becomes king in May 1291. Bishop Arnund of Strengness, who supported Magnus in his fight against his brother Valdemar, also died that year, and so did at least three other members of Magnus's inner circle, if we can call it that. And whilst this might sound a bit suspicious, it doesn't actually seem to be. This seems to be all natural causes. They had reached what was sort of uh, the average life expectancy. They were kind of in their mid-50s, approaching 60, and that's when you died in the 1200s. Natural causes, but um, still early for us today. Um, So that's why we might uh, initially think this might be a bit suspicious. And so with the old entourage of the past king gone, and the new king being just a child, this leaves the stage relatively empty for a group of powerful men of the nobility to come into the council and take over de facto rule of Sweden. And they're led by a man called Torgil Knutsson. And it's this Torgil Knutsson who is really the ruler of Sweden from 1290. His official title is Marsk, a military title we introduced in the last episode. This is the title that's only found in medieval Denmark and Sweden, and it's a bit like commander-in-chief, but at the same time, it could also be an honorary title given to influential members of the nobility, regardless of actual sort of military involvement. So Mask Torgil leads this regency council that's put in place to keep things ticking over while the country is waiting for King Bioyo to, I don't know, stop eating his own boogers and become fit to actually rule. Whether or not Bioyo's mother, the Queen Mother Helvig, is in the council is unknown, but even if she didn't have any actual say in the matters of state, It appears she kept a very active role in raising her son, the young king, and his siblings. And this Torgil is a man of many names. His title is Musk, and his surname is Knutson. But when it comes to his first name, well, that comes in very many forms in different sources. We found sources that call him Tirgils, Torgils, Torkel, Torgil, and even a Latin form, Tirgilium Canuti. <laughs> that sounds like something I could order in an Italian restaurant. Or you catch as a very bad disease. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's got Tirgilium Canuti. Oh, poor him. His, oh. his intestines must be really swollen. 
Chanuti in particular sounds not nice. For simplicity's sake, we're just going to call him Torgil, as much as it would be fun to call him Torgillium. Um, but it's good to know you can find him in sources under all of these names in, in uh, one way or another. So if you do want to do more reading, just don't be surprised that a Torgillium might turn up when everybody else is called Magnus and Eric. Surprise, surprise, not much is known about this Torgil's early life either or where he's from, or who his family was. Presumably his dad was Knut, but that's all we know. Some historians have speculated that he was somehow related to the Bielbu dynasty, and that's why he's entrusted with this powerful position after King Magnus dies, but that's just speculation. There's no family tree that points out that he's connected in some way. We know he's named both Drotz, which is a judicial role, and Mask in the last few years of King Magnus's reign. And the king also knighted him, a practice that's recently become popular in Sweden, in 1289. So just one year before King Magnus died. For a man who did effectively rule Sweden for some time, mainstream sources seem to not have focused too much on Torgil, in many ways, he is seen as a caretaker between the rule of two kings from the Bielbo dynasty, which I suppose is essentially what he was. I would also maybe speculate that because the previous period was so tumultuous with Magnus and Valdemar fighting over the throne, and what's going to come after is going to be really messy and crazy, maybe there's been a tendency for historians to focus on what came before and what came after and Torgil and the Regency Council, that period is just sort of a bit forgotten about because it's sandwiched between two such crazy times that are maybe, I don't know, more fun to study. Yeah, and spoilers, he doesn't go rogue and try and become king himself, so that also makes it a bit boring mm. in that sense. He just does his job. <laughs> but he does do his job, and he does have a lot of things to do, because he's trying to keep together this kingdom when this young kid is king. And the main thing that Torgil and the council had to deal with in domestic politics is a rising tension between the church and the nobility. Both were powerful players in medieval Swedish society, as we've seen before, and both were exempt in some way or another from various forms of taxes, but the nobility did have obligations to provide the king with knights and horses, something that Torgil as a mask would be very interested in. The church had been very privileged and enjoyed many benefits during Magnus's reign, and the nobility was getting a bit, well, maybe a bit envious to put a stop to what they saw as excessive benefits for the church and the people connected to it, Torgil and the council refused to confirm the privileges that King Magnus had granted the church back in 1281. Instead, they only gave out individual privileges to certain bishops, church institutions and monasteries which I suppose is a great way to both limit the power of the church as a whole and also to make sure you have certain key individuals on your side. Yeah, and it's a bit of a mobster thing to do, though, um, but it seemed to have worked out for him, sharing privileges with your certain uh, friends and buddies. But like also said, in the 1290s, it seems to be a relatively calm and uneventful period at home in Sweden. 
Instead, Torgil and the council will become known for events that occurred in foreign policy, and they all involve Sweden's position in modern-day Finland and its attempts to expand its power eastwards. This in itself implies that the domestic situation was calm and the legitimacy of the king and the regency council was stable, so Torgil and the council can spend a lot of time on foreign affairs, leaving the country for long periods of time without any fear of major drama happening at home. And we've seen this happen many times before in uh, the podcast so far. Whenever things seems a bit too calm at home, the Swedes go east or go somewhere else and do a bit of killing. By now, as Torgir starts examining his map before heading east, he can see that Sweden has a relatively firm hold on the southwest and coastal regions of modern-day Finland, but in the eastern border region, control was still not a sure thing, because to the east, there was always the good old nemesis that is Novgorod lurking in the shadows, waiting to take advantage of any opportunity that might come its way. And we do portray them as a bit of a like sort of like a sneaky Bond villain, <laughs> but um I think they were just the same as Sweden yeah. in a way. But they are the bad guys in the story, so they get to be the bad guys. They're the bad guys in the Swedish uh, story, exactly. yeah. But I bet Sweden is the bad guy in the Novgorod or subsequent Russian stories. And in 1292, the Novgorod Chronicle describes how the men of Novgorod went with their leader to Tavastia, or Tavastland in Swedish, the region in south-central Finland, if you imagine the middle bit but away from the coast. Um, the Chronicle says that they went to Tavastland to, quote, make war. There seems to have been no real provocation behind this sudden decision to make war, other than an ongoing and by now quite long-standing dispute with the Swedes over territory in the region. And the Swedes don't just let this war-making in Tavastland go by. Later in the year, Swedes raid Karelia and Ingmanland, which are areas further to the east as revenge, and these are Novgorodian territories. It's unknown if these were two separate raids, or one raid that just hopped over and did two places at once. According to the Novgorod Chronicle, which we know is going to be partial to Novgorod, as we said, the Swedes are the enemies in their story, they said that the Swedes only had 800 men, and that this double raid ended badly for them. But whether it's biased or not, what is certain is that the raids in 1292, going backwards and forwards, resulted in no real change in overall control of these territories, and in the end everything just went back to status quo. In many ways, 1292 is a bit of a prelude to what's to come, a sort of little warm-up exercise to get ready for what old Swedish history books like to call the Third Crusade in Finland. Very grand title indeed. And as we mentioned in our episode all about Finland back in episode 42, old Swedish history books and previous generations of Swedish historians often like to simplify the history of Swedish rule in modern-day Finland by saying that it was established by a set of three crusades. Now, as we discussed in episode 42, it wasn't really that simple or straightforward, and nor were these events that took place 
strictly speaking, crusades in many ways. Yes, the Swedes did spread Roman Catholic Christianity eastwards on their raids and campaigns, but often that was not the sole or main or even top five purpose of why they went off on these campaigns. Indeed, and with regards to what happens in 1293 to 1295, uh, we've not been able to confirm whether Torgil Knudsson actually had the Pope's blessing or not, which would make it an official crusade. Either way, the term the Third Crusade to Finland is a bit obsolete anyway, so let's just call it Torgil's campaign eastwards. 1293 to 1295. Not a hugely snappy title, but we'll roll with it. This raid is a continuation of Sweden's desire to expand eastwards, as we've mentioned. It's been going backwards and forwards for centuries at this point. They're looking to expand from the areas in Tavas land that they already controlled into West and East Karelia, which were much more strongly tied to Novgorod. Now, before we go further with the details of what happened, it's worth keeping in mind that the terrain in Karelia is very wild and inhospitable. In the spring of 1293, Torgil Knutsson sets sail and leads a large fleet of Swedish ships to Finland. Their first goal is to claim a marketplace and a harbour in a place which I'm going to butcher completely. It's called Sautumendavendapoja on the coast. And holding Sautumendavendapoja is a key spot to ensure control of West Karelia and improve your pronunciation of uh, Finnish place names. I think you did quite well. I, I also have no idea how that Sormen Vedenpoia is, so is meant to be pronounced. There's a T. Southmen Vedenpoia. Southmen Vedenpoia. I'm sorry, Finnish people. Yeah, that's what they're aiming for. Torgil and his fleet has chosen this particular time to attack in Karelia because they know that Novgorod has been attacked by Tartars from the east. So they're already busy fighting there classic two-front war is one that's always very hard to fight as so that's the swedes are taking advantage of this distraction exactly so they arrive in sortmen vendenpoia and gain hold of it not much is known about this early part of the campaign uh, mainly because there's nothing in the novgorod chronicle about it maybe because like we said they were busy fighting the tartars in fact, all the Chronicle says is that the Swedes, having arrived, put up a town in the Karelian lands and then spends a couple of paragraphs talking about their war in the east. Uh, so they definitely seem to be distracted by that in 1293. And by town, the Chronicle tends to mean fortress. And that's what the Swedes built in Swartmervendampoja, and from there, they have a great foothold for control over the rest of Karelia. And they have also secured an important expansion eastwards for Catholicism against the Novgorodians, who were Orthodox Christians. Now, this is perhaps the best bit, considering how much Chris and I have struggled with the pronunciation. The Swedes rename Sotmanvendampoja V-Boy. <laughs> Much easier to say. Now, for a slight spoiler alert, but Viboy will become an important Swedish town and stay Swedish until 
1721. So we're now in the 1290s. This will be a Swedish town until 1721. After that, it, it became a Finnish town, first as part of the Grand Duchy of Finland in Tsarist Russia, and then from 1917 as a city in the independent Finland. As a result of the peace treaty in Paris uh, 1947, Viboy ended up in the USSR. It is today a Russian city in the Leningrad Oblast with about 80,000 inhabitants. Yeah, and it's quite mad to think that at one point Sweden reached that far east and did it for a very long time. And as 1293 comes to an end, it's all looking good for the Swedes. Most of them go back home, though, and only a small force is left behind to look after their new fortress. After all, they know the Novgorodians are busy elsewhere, and nobody likes to fight over winter anyway. You can imagine that it's going to be much nicer in their permanent homes back in Sweden rather than this very freshly built fortress. And things are still looking good as 1294 gets going, but that will all change come March. According to the Novgorod Chronicle, on the 10th of March, Novgorod finally pushes back against Sweden and attacks the fortress, an attack led by Prince Roman Glebovici of Smolensk, which we mainly want to mention because he has a cool name. That is a cool name, but the prince and his forces don't have much luck. They're attacking over ice because the Swedish fortress stand on a like a bit of an inlet, so they've come over the ice. The fortress stands strong, and the initial attack is followed by strong winds from the southwest, which makes it impossible for the Novgorodians to attack again, because the ice sheets that they were standing on, well, they're blowing away. Whoa, help, we're blowing away. They're literally, the battlefield is being blown away, yeah. which is amazing to think about. You can imagine that in sort of like a, a big blockbuster film with the icebergs, giant sheets of ice with soldiers on them being floated and blown away. So the Swedes have been quite clever with the positioning of V-Boy Fortress. It's built on an inlet, and so the only practical way to take it is to attack from the sea. Uh, the Novgorodians didn't bring any boats uh, because they were so confident that they could attack over the frozen water. Uh, but with the change in weather, that's now not possible. The ice must have been pretty unstable as the strong winds in the storm start breaking it up and blowing it away from the fortress, which, like Chris said, that's a very cool... You can picture the kind of the scene in the film. Pretty soon, the Novgorodians give up any further attack, uh, partly because the weather also means that they struggle to keep their supply lines open. Yes, and it's very hard to attack from the land on this inlet because you can imagine the Swedes would have focused all of their defences on defending just the very small land side, hence why the Novgorodians tried to attack over the ice. A bit like uh, Constantinople having its amazing walls. And so, well, let's try attack from sea. So later in the spring, a fleet from Sweden arrives, filled with new, fresh men ready to fight and build up their strength at Vibor Fortress. And they go on the offensive. The goal this time is Kexholm, a Karelian town further to the north on the shores of Lake Ladoga. And any uh, people living in Sweden, I have no idea if this relates to Kex, the biscuits that you can buy that are called Kex. Are they named after this place called Kexholm? Well, Kex is just the Swedish word for biscuit. 
So this is actually called Biscuit Inlet. Uh, yeah. Kexholm is called Biscuit Inlet. Or maybe they, they made lots of biscuits. Yeah. There. Uh, maybe. I don't know the etymology of uh, Kexholm. Yes. But anyway, Kexholm is where the Swedes want to attack. Holding both Viborg on the coast and Kexholm down on Lake Ladoga would really strengthen Swedish control over all of Karelia, and not to mention really stick it to the Novgorodians, for whom the whole basis of their existence was controlling trade going through, around and on Lake Ladoga. The Swedes launch a surprise attack on Kexholm, commanded by a knight called Sigur Lake or Sigur Larka in Swedish, uh, which is a very another very cool name. And Kexholm falls to Sigur Larka. Hooray! Victory. Just like they did in Viboy, the Swedes leave a small group to look after Kexholm for the winter, and the rest head back, first to Viboy, and then most of them go all the way back to Sweden. Kexholm, by the way, is also a Russian town today called, and pardon my pronunciation, Pryusersk, and it has about 18,000 inhabitants. Yep, so if you're looking on the map, look for Pryusersk. And everything seems to be going Sweden's way at this point. It's definitely not called Pryusersk yet. And Torgo Knutsson is leading this fight. The fall of Kexholm weighs very heavily on Novgorod, and they really want to take it back. So when 1295 rolls around, they launch a counterattack. And this time, they make sure they don't repeat the same mistake they did counterattacking Vibor. So long before the ice is about to melt, a Novgorodian army arrives at Kexholm and besieges it. They want the biscuits. And this time, the circumstances favour the Novgorodians. The supplies were already short for the Swedes at Kexholm, and pretty soon, a siege means that starvation is imminent for the small group left behind there. Eventually, they decide to give up hanging around and make a break for it and run away from the fortress unfortunately only two men make it the rest are all killed or captured the novgorodian chronicles succinctly sums up this campaign with the short words the swedes under their leader sigur put up a town in the Korel land but the men of novgorod went and plundered it killed sig and let no man escape well, all but two, it seems. There's different... Uh, the Swedes say two escaped, and the Novgorodians say none escaped. So, yeah, not good either way. In general, Kixholm seemed to have mattered more to Novgorod than it did to Torgil Knutsson and to Sweden. Because even as spring and summer arrives and Sweden could get reinforcements, they don't try to retake it. It seems that Sweden was very pleased with establishing V-Boy and creating that stronghold on the coast, which had given them the intended results. They had expanded eastward, and that was a boost to Swedish national pride. Uh, Kixholm was a secondary objective, a, a nice to have, but not fundamentally important to their short-term goals, it seems. Yes, and whilst they were happy for the moment, eastward expansion will not stop here for Sweden. 
Sources don't mention any major battles in the area in the years 1296 to 1299, so it's assumed there was a bit of a lull in the fighting then. But it will all resume come the year 1300. Perhaps they were busy, they thought, celebrate the new century with a bit of campaigning. Yeah, but before we continue with that next campaign, let's quickly check in how things are going at home and how young Belial is doing. Yeah, how is he kinging? Well, he's grown up a bit now and he's now in his late teens. In 1296, he's done his first recorded bit of actual kinging when he officially approved the Upland Law. And as we've mentioned a few times now, there were some national laws in Sweden at the time uh, that applied to everywhere in the country. But most laws were based on a county-by-county level, a bit like the federal legal system in countries like the USA today. And that's why we have things like the Upland Law in Upland, the Vestigurta Law in Vestigurtland, the Guta Law on Gotland, and all these various local laws. We talked more about this and the medieval legal system in general in our two-part episode, Law and Order. Biryo officially approving the Upland law is seen by historians as another step in making the king the protector and upholder of the law. Uh, According to many historians, people across medieval Europe viewed the law as an extension of the natural order of things. Basically, laws were just written down versions of a definite defined set of rights and wrongs to make sure this order these rights and wrongs was upheld and made clear to everyone that was increasingly seen as the job of the king now so in short the king was increasingly being seen as the guardian of the law and guardian of what was right As a consequence, the kings also started to be more involved in legal affairs and in the institutions of justice. The Upland Law of 1296, for example, was just a revision of previous laws, but it was a revision that the young king had ordered and that he put his name to, to symbolize his status as king. And a quick side note, Birya doesn't just do his first major kingly thing in 1296. He also gets to watch his older sister, Ingeborg, get married to the Danish king, Erik Menved, in a wedding ceremony held at Helsingborg Castle down in Danish Skorna, where Orsa's dad is from. Correct. Hello, Helsingborg. This is obviously a big occasion and a further indication of the strengthening of relations between Sweden and Denmark at this time. We mentioned the plans for the wedding in the last episode, as this was a result of a long period of preparation by King Magnus back when he was alive. He was very much setting up these future weddings for his children. And it all seems worth it now. Uh, It makes 1296 a a pretty big year for Bielio. Actually, he's not far behind his sister when it comes to the marriage business. Uh, Two years later, in 1298, he marries the Danish princess Merta, or Margareta, as she's known in some sources. Merta is the sister of the Danish king Erik Menved, who Birjol's sister married just two years earlier. So basically, it's a Swedish royal brother and sister marrying a Danish royal brother and sister. Double connections for the two countries. 
Yeah, Bioyo is around 18 at the time, and Merta probably a few years older. Uh, she's believed to be born in 1277, which makes her 21 at the time of her wedding. To us, it might seem like an early age to get married, uh, 18 and 21, but Bioyo and Merta have actually been betrothed to each other pretty much since they were born. According to the Eirik Chronicle, the union was negotiated already in 1282, and it was the couple's respective fathers that decided that they should marry. Merta is even believed to have been partly raised in Sweden by Bioyo's mother Helvig, so she was raised by her future mother-in-law. Since Sweden was where she was going to end up living anyway, she might as well move here as a kid and get used to things, I suppose was their thinking. So, so much for falling in love and more about making political alliances. And as is so often the case, we don't know what Birja and Merta actually thought of each other, but Merta is often described as one of the more powerful queens of the time, and that she often advised her husband in his raw duties. The couple soon get to work on having some children, and will have four in total. Two sons called Magnus and Eric, and two daughters called Agnes and Katarina. So, with Birja now happily married, we've reached the turn of a new century. It's the year 1300. Yeah, exactly. Just as we mentioned, so Birja's at home enjoying all these weddings whilst Torga Knutsson is spending the, the run-up to the 1300s fighting in the East. So it's a bit of a different way to uh, ring in the new century, I guess. As the clock ticks over to 1300, Sweden is believed to have around a million inhabitants, uh, the vast majority of them living in rural areas and spending their lives in a system of subsistence farming. Turning the clock over to 1300 also means that we're leaving the period that is often referred to as the High Middle Ages, which is a term I know we've used a bit in the podcast. Obviously, dividing history into periods and eras is a highly subjective and inexact science that's done in hindsight, but some people do find it helpful in terms of the context of what we're talking about. In general, the High Middle Ages tend to be defined as a period between the year 1000 and the mid to late 1200s. After that, you sometimes talk about the late Middle Ages as a period stretching from the mid to late 1200s to the early 1500s. And because he's been doing so much up till now, who can think of a better way to celebrate the start of a new century than to continue doing more raiding in the East? Well, the Swedes couldn't, and Torgil Knutsson couldn't, because even with the success of securing more of the coast along the Bay of Finland and establishing this new fortress at Viborg, Sweden, with Mask Torgil Knutsson at the helm, wanted more. Yes, uh, the goal was to quash or at least reduce, Novgorod's influence in the area, and this time they were going to attack them where it really hurt, at the mouth of the River Neva in the innermost point of the Bay of Finland. Because the River Neva connects Lake Ladoga with the sea, Novgorod absolutely depended on controlling it and controlling the point where it met the sea to safeguard trade coming to and from their country. 
Some sources also argue that Sweden wanted to establish presence at Neva in order to create a more fixed eastern border that was more manageable to defend. This was the goal the last time Swedes went far into the Neva in Eric XI's reign back in 1240. Uh, it didn't end up too well that time, so maybe this time it would turn out better. That battle was such a success for the Novgorodians that their prince got the nickname Nevsky to celebrate his victory at Neva. So let's see if Torgo Knutsson becomes Torgo Knutsson Nevsky. Um, and he once again personally leads a fleet of ships across the Baltic Sea. And this time, the Swedes are bringing the works. One chronicle describes it as the most beautiful armada you have ever seen, and that it sailed east with 1,100 men. Like we've said a few times in these sources, 1,100, we're not sure if these are just the super professional soldiers and then some hangers-on who are more just peasants with pitchforks and less professionally trained because it doesn't seem like that large a number of people for a country of one million people. But there's, yeah, there's a bit of debate about how many people actually went. There doesn't seem to be much defence waiting for the Swedes as they approach the Neva because as soon as Torgil and his 1,100 men reach the mouth of the river, they get to work building a fortress. Now, it's probably a wooden fortress, considering they're building it in such a hurry, and they've chosen to erect it on a slice of land that's protruding out into the water between the main river Neva and a smaller river called Ocha. And even though they're building it in a quite a hurry, they still have time to fit it with eight towers and build a moat around it. That's not bad. That's, that's good work. Uh, they call the fortress Landskrona, literally translated to English, the crown of the land. Now, it might seem strange that the Novgorodians are just letting Sweden get on with building a fortress relatively undisturbed uh, at such a crucial place in their territory. But Novgorod is experiencing a lot of internal trouble and turmoil at this time. Uh, some historians have also speculated that this might be why there is relatively little said about these events in the Novgorod Chronicle. There was just too much going on for poor old Novgorod. In the end, there is eventually a counterattack mounted against the Swedes by Novgorod. We're not sure who leads it, and it could be that rather than being organised centrally by Novgorod High Command, so to speak, it's just organised by towns and villages around the Ladoga area. Because by building this fortress on the mouth of the river Neva, the Swedes have essentially put a chokehold on the towns and villages in the area that are loyal to Novgorod. So these people launch a counterattack. One report back to Sweden that survived said that 100 heathens had arrived and are ready to do battle. So, again, yeah, 100 versus 1,100, that's not too, that's not a huge battle to me. Oh, it, it also seems strange that 100 men elicit such a reaction from Sweden because Sweden quickly sends 800 men led by Harald from Tavasland. No last name there, just good old Harald from Tavasland, to deal with them. But Harald and the 800 men get caught in a storm and are forced to turn back. Uh, this gives Novgorod time to gather even more forces. 
They also employ some crude psychological warfare when they tell their interpreter to relay a message to the Swedes that says that Novgorod are gathering a force of 31,000 men. I think the numbers are just all over the picture here. Uh, it's The 31,000 is in all likelihood a huge overstatement aimed at, uh, yeah, frightening the Swedes a bit. Yes, and instead of being frightened, the Swedes will try to outsmart the numerically superior Novgorodians. Novgorod begin their attack on the Swedes by launching burning barges towards where the Swedish ships are assembled to try and set them on fire. A bit like slow-burning torpedoes on the surface of the water. And this has actually been a classic naval tactic for centuries at this point. And because of that, one of the Swedes had read a book, and so they actually anticipated this might happen and had built blockades around their ships to stop the Novgorodians coming in. So instead, the Novgorodian burning barges just float around for a bit, maybe hit some of these blockades, and eventually fizzle out. And it's all a bit of a waste. <laughs> That's so sad. It just... Yeah, it's like a broken firework. But Novgorod won't let this initial blunder stop them. They send in their foot soldiers en masse to the fortress. And here, Swedish knights on horseback await them and combat ensues. This really does seem like we're getting into proper medieval mm. fighting with knights and horses and, albeit badly used, actual tactics being used by the two sides. Yeah, this move seems to not have resulted in any decisive victory one way or the other because there's then a period of what must have been at least several days when the two sides just stand there eyeing each other up, waiting for round three. Perhaps in an effort to break the stalemate, the Swedish knight Mats Schettilsson challenges his opposite number to a duel but the Novgorodian rejects it, which is very ungentlemanly, I think. <laughs> yes, and that would have been very cool to see some one-to-one -one combat. But alas, we don't get it, and instead, in a move that's quite puzzling, the Novgorodians just pack up their camp and leave. Bye, hey door. Yeah, that is very odd. Uh, perhaps the whole thing had dragged out and winter was coming. We just don't know. Uh, but leave... They do, and the Swedes are left there with their new fortress, Landskrivuna, and pretty soon the nobility, uh, who were sort of the officers in modern military terms, well, they get bored of just sitting there and start to plan to head home. They also don't want to hang out in a random fortress over winter. They want to go home to their luxurious homes and families. Uh, they decide to leave 200 soldiers and 100 workers at Landskrona, commanded by a knight called Sven. However, bad weather delays the departure of the rest of the Swedes, and so in the meantime, they go off and conduct smaller raids along the coast, which angers both Novgorod and Denmark, who, remember at this point, have a presence in what is modern-day Estonia. You can imagine uh, when this got back to King Birger, he's like, wait, what, what? why did you kill some Danish people? Do you remember the double royal marriage? Just, what are you doing, guys? That's a bit dumb. 
But luckily, it didn't seem to cause too many problems between the two countries. Yeah, it was just light raiding, no, no heavy raiding. Yeah, we can all uh, we can all put up with some light raiding, um, and that's always a good thing to do to pass the time. Some light raiding. But eventually, these officers and noble Swedes do decide to finally head back home after the weather turns and they can leave. But Novgorod is not planning to give up this important position quite so easily, because after all, they probably only left because of the bad weather to begin with. So in early spring 1301, they come back, and this time they're determined to destroy Landskrona. They start by blocking the river Neva, and then launch an attack on the fortress on the 19th of May. The 200 Swedish soldiers under the command of Knight Sven haven't been reinforced. So after the long winter, it seems they are starving, running out of decent food, and are plagued with diseases. But being honourable, noble soldiers, they do put up a fight, but alas, to no avail. The fortress Landskrona collapses, both literally and figuratively, and the Swedes, those that weren't killed in the fighting, are forced to surrender. This does sound like a bit of a repeat of what happened with Kixholm a few years earlier. The Swedes just don't seem to be cut out to fight the long game. They always win the first round, but then Novgorod comes back in the second year and gets it back in the end after the Swedes leave a token garrison behind. Yes, but to cut the Swedes some slack, it is harder at this point to defend a military outpost far away from your home country than it is to counterattack on your own territory. You can imagine the nightmare of a supply situation was really tough for the Swedes with the winter weather of the time. But still, losing Landskrona is a big disappointment for the Swedes, and they don't have much hope of taking it back. After 1303, Novgorod is strengthened thanks to having made peace with Denmark regarding control over areas in modern-day Estonia, so they can focus more of their attention on securing their border against Sweden. Sweden returns to having its easternmost border around the area of Vibor, and there's no mention of any fighting along the eastern border for the next couple of years. Yeah, so we've now reached 1302, and not really mentioned any goings-on in Sweden at all, but important things are about to happen back in Sweden proper very soon. But let's wrap it up there for today and leave it to next time to see what happens back on home ground, so to say. I think that's a good idea. And one thing quickly before we go, let's give the listeners a few seconds to guess what they think is on the spot of where the Swedes once built this fortress of Landskrona. <laughs> well, it's that spot where the river Neva meets the sea and is now location of a little, small, tiny place you might have heard of called St. Petersburg. Yeah, isn't that cool? Where the Swedes once built a fortress that was destroyed after less than two years, there's now a famous city like St. Petersburg. And, spoiler alert, this isn't the last time there will be Swedish presence in what is today St. Petersburg. Uh, but more on that in a few hundred years' time. Yes, and um, do have a look on our, by this point, our website, where there will be a map showing this uh, lovely bit of the world. But also just go onto Google Maps and type in Neva River and uh, zoom in and you can see a bit 
sort of on the west side of St. Petersburg, where, where the Ochta River comes in and meets the Neva, and you get a really good picture of why the Swedes and the Novgorodians were fighting over this place, especially when you zoom out a bit and follow the rivers up to Lake Ladoga and stuff. It really uh, gives you a good perspective of why all this stuff is happening here. Next time, we'll see what happens when King Bjorn properly takes the helm as ruler of Sweden, because he's now grown up a bit and Torgil Knudsson is, is ready to hand over a bit of power to the young king. Until then, don't forget to follow us on social media and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. But for now, it's bye from us. Hey, doll.